0: Straight Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. This is a not-for-profit live broadcast that came from an inspiration that Off, whom I'm about to introduce in a moment, and I had just in this whole COVID pandemic context of what a lot of people are calling the Great Reset or the Great Pause. And the idea is that this is giving us a time as a collective humanity to really take stock at what are we doing? What are we doing that's not working? Um, Looking into all the infrastructures that are now being exposed, that are being seen as archaic or broken in so many different sectors of life. We're also seeing new possibilities emerge and new innovations being birthed. And that's really the most exciting aspect of this time is it's not business as usual anymore. And as most people are sensing and intuiting, it's never going to be an old normal. And so what is this new normal? That's something for us to continue to evolve and discover. And that's really the whole point of this show is we are proudly bringing on some of the leading thought experts in different fields that we're wanting to really focus on and address to really get a better understanding or at least open up the right discussion, the right debate and questions that we should be asking. on on the most important aspects and considerations of our world right now, whether it is around diversity and inclusion or around artificial intelligence and what's happening in a post-COVID world in that regard, whether it is about higher education like we're going to speak about today, which I'm very excited about. Um, So stay tuned. Fasten your seatbelts. This is going to be a live, unhinged, untethered show where we're just going to get a speak off the cuff on the most important areas in in this case on higher education. So I'm your host Rick Snyder. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge and the author of Decisive Intuition. And my passion is developing intuitive intelligence with leaders and teams for better decision making, innovation, sales, and also leadership uh, decision and as well as presence and how to have a better, better impact in today's world with what we're intuiting and anticipating. And I'm joined by Af Malhotra, one of my dear friends and esteemed colleagues. Af, why don't you take it away with a little bit of your background and what also has you excited on about this show in particular?
1: Thanks, Rick. Uh, phenomenal to be on the show here today with uh, yourself and two incredible guests. So, uh, you know, you guys know who we are. My, my story, I'm Af Malhotra. My story is Is, um, you know, um, the genesis has come from the fact that I'm absolutely passionate about transformations in society uh, on the human side, on the digital side, and of course on the social impact side. And straight talk.live came about because of this deep sense uh, of purpose and, and, you know, frankly, collective change that both Rick and I wanted to make in society. And during this quarantine period, there was no better timing or opportunity to do this. And uh, you know, I'm currently the co-founder of Growth Enabler, which is an AI business changing the way enterprises engage with the startups and disruptors of tomorrow. I'm a venture capitalist, I've invested in companies for many years, and I speak often wherever I can in the media about the things that I care for most. And most importantly, um, I feel after the COVID episode is is over, I believe a new beginning, a new reality um, is lined up for me personally and for all the people who are closest to me, including all of you guys on this call and everyone listening here today. So delighted to run another one of these beautiful, brilliant sessions.
0: Excellent. And this takes us to what we're going to be talking about today. So we're going to be now lasering our focus on, are we ready for higher education 2.0? Um, I've been speaking to a lot of, um, you know, millennials, even Gen Zers, and I'm really getting a sense that more, more than ever, there's a frustration that's been building. And part of that frustration is feeling like our traditional educational systems are not evolving fast enough. Um, that I'm not feeling prepared to enter the job market in ways that maybe have completely changed in the last five or ten years with technology. With our understanding of the global landscape. So before we uh, jump with our esteemed guests here, I wanna first ask you off, just to set the tone for the show. I know that you dabble your feet very deeply into the startup space and the corporate space. What are you seeing? What are some of your trends that you're noticing on the front lines right now in how people are either being prepared for their higher education experience into the quote unquote real world, or how that's actually being fast tracked now and some people who are willing to take that maverick entrepreneurial step actually are at an advantage or disadvantage. What, what are some of your initial thoughts here?
1: Yeah, thank you. So look, there's, this is such a huge, huge subject area. And it's become even more pertinent after the crisis that we're going through right now. And with, you know, crisis, interestingly, Al Gore in one of his talks Described the word crisis by saying, "Listen, in kanji, which is um, these are the characters that are used in both Chinese and Japanese, or um, you know, Mandarin and and, and Cantonese, and and the Japanese language, they have kind of two symbols. One symbol is about uh, danger, and the other symbol is about opportunity. And I think the crisis that we're going through right now is both. It is a massive fear factor and a catastrophe." Uh, that we're all going through to some extent, but at the same time, it, it's spelling opportunity. And I think the biggest and the most important sort of uh, part of this discussion is that the higher education system uh, is ready and armed to seize this opportunity if the leadership in in these in institutions are wired up in the right way. You know, I've been a graduate myself. I did my master's and, and I did the first degree and then I did another degree and I did some executive education. And I feel that um, the education, higher education system was built for a certain age. Um, And I'm not going to put 19th or 20th or 21st century on it as a tag. But I do think that uh, learners need to create a bit of a a revolution in how they're taught. Um, And I'm a big proponent of AI and digital. I do believe online learning. I believe uh, the immersion and the level of flexibility you get from learning online, even this channel in itself on the back of a laptop is informative and game-changing and can shape minds. I think that needs to be brought into traditional, tacit knowledge based education systems where you've got to come in and meet face to face and sit in a lecture room. And you know, taking taking an analogy from Clayton Christensen, who I'm I'm a big fan of and he's passed now, unfortunately, but, you know, he used to joke and say, uh, you know, education that is lecture hall based is designed for people up to the 10th row in the lecture hall. Beyond that, with hundreds, if not, if not thousands of people sitting in a lecture hall, it's actually pointless because there's no intimacy. People are busy picking up mobile devices or doing other things. So there is a school of thought that says we need to re-examine the way we teach um, students and, and future generations who will be employees of tomorrow, and as a, a you know someone who's hired a bunch of people and trained them and coached them, and i you know I've got my own startup and I look to hire great people. I'm looking for a slightly different type of uh, education system that is not bound by a degree that a costs a lot of money and is taught in a classroom and only in a classroom. And I think, by the way, I'm not saying it's a negative thing. There's a lot of a lot of positive change already happening in education. Numerous examples that we'll, we'll cross in this discussion uh, that are being talked of. I feel having these two guys on the phone today, on the call today, on the, on the live broadcast today, you know, Chandrez and, and both Mitesh, it, it's time that we start debating and discussing in the many months that we have before the doors open again, how we're going to flip this model on its head. And educators have the, same responsibility as learners. They're equally responsible and, you know, have an active role in transforming the system. So it's, this is something that's very, very important. We can talk about employment, unemployment rates all day long. And we have been in the last webinar and the next webinar, we're discussing the revolution of the NBA, but actually at the end of the day, um, it's about getting that particular learner ready to feel that they've got optionality—that's one word I want to use on this session today. Optionality, more options the better, and empowered. Optionality and empowered empowerment. So they get out into the into the job market, or they go become entrepreneurs, with a whole new level of education, different level of exposure. That you know is underpinned by a lot of cool new technologies. And so that, that's how I'd love to kick off the call today. But before we do so, before we do so, Rick, it's very important um, for us to delve into why these two gentlemen have come onto this call, to this webinar, to this live broadcast, and what are their personal stories? Because, you know, we've got loads of feedback from a lot of our listeners saying, we'd love to hear the debate and discussion, but we want to hear what the personal stories are of the people you're inviting to these calls, because there is a reason you have a way of thinking there is a reason you say what you say and how you say what you say. And I would love for that to be unpacked. So over to you, Rick, and let's, let's get, let's get uh, our guests to contribute and say what they really need to say. That's why they're
0: here. 100%, I'm with you on board completely. So let's uh, first introduce Chandres Tehura. So Chandres, hello, welcome.
2: Hi, Rick, hi, Af. Uh, uh, thank you Good very to- much for having me today. And yeah. hello to the viewers uh,
0: around the world. Pleasure yeah, to be thank here. You. Thank you for being with us from London today. And what I have here is that you were actually born in East London and raised in a council tenement and working since the age of 14. And for the American audience out there, that's the same as, being, as growing up in the projects. And so really coming from a challenging upbringing, um, you, you moved all, your way all the way through becoming a senior lecturer in, in accounting at Queen Mary's uh, University in London. And you recently completed a successful three-year tenure as program director to the business school's largest course in business management. Um, Previously, um, you were senior lecturer at London Metropolitan University over 14 years. And you were also student nominated for lecturer of the year at LMU and QMUL, which I think is a fantastic acknowledgement. And you also are a part-time PhD student currently. And your research, one of your passions around research is linked to the areas of accounting and ethics. And I'm so glad to hear those two in the same sentence. (laughs) So thank you Chandras for being on board here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And then I also wanna introduce Mitesh Sony. And so Mitesh is a FinTech industry leader with more than 20 years experience driving business transformation, digital disruption, and business model definition across financial markets. He's an investor, an advisor and entrepreneur with an active interest in building community-led innovation ecosystems. He's a founding member and ambassador of Singularity University, London chapter, which convenes leaders to collaborate and address the pressing challenges of our society today. So welcome, Mitesh. Hi,
3: hi, Rick. Hi, Af. And hi, Chandras, and everyone that's uh... Uh, Jumps on the call today. Thanks for having me on the episode. Really great to be here. And what a fantastic topic and great introduction from both of you.
0: Welcome again, and pleasure to have you both. So let's, let's just jump right in. As Af was mentioning, uh, let's start with you, Chandras. I'd love just to, for the, li- the listeners and the audience to hear a little bit more about what has you on this call? Why are you so passionate about higher education? What's your personal transformation story that you can speak to so that everyone can get a sense of where you're coming from in this dialogue.
2: Thanks, Rick. Uh, My personal story around higher education for for which I have a passion about um, is deeply personal and is centered around social mobility. Uh, I'd like to think that I am a product of social mobility and I am where I am and I've seen other students go through their own endeavors, their own challenges, and it's been higher education and the learning within higher education that's given them ample opportunities and and open doors. And I'm grateful that that's happened because that's opened doors to students around the world. And they literally are around the world from the US, Canada, Africa, Asia, uh, Australia, and so on. My background, um, I'll, I'll start from the age of 14 and I'll underpin it to the, the substance and the meaning of higher education for me and, and others um, from that particular time. So I started working at the age of 14 um, after an argument that I overheard between my mom and my dad um, about a pair of trainers. I think you call them sneakers over there in the States.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, They're only 10 pounds, which is probably equivalent to about 12, 13 dollars. And They could not afford it for me. So what I did the next day is I ran downstairs from the, the the council flat, the, the the local authority projects that you might want to call and went to one or two shops, three, four, five shops, just asking for a job. Mm -hmm. Um, You cannot work in the UK until you're 16 years old. So I started working in a shop. I will not name that shop for obviously legal legal reasons, but um, they gave me a job to work on Saturdays for a few hours, which then turned soon into working two, three days a week after school and on Saturdays as well. And I remember my first wage was approximately 80 pence per hour, which is less than $1 per hour that I got paid. But for me, it meant a lot. And I, I saved money to buy a top. I saved money to buy those pair of trainers that I wanted as well, which are only 10, 10 pounds. Um, studying and working was difficult, but I, I had to do that. It was now not just about the trainers. It wasn't about that top. Um, it was about getting out of the, the council flats, the, the local authority housing for me, my mom, and my brother, because my father passed away when I was 17. Mm. And a week after he passed away, someone tried to burn down our flat by setting a light, the the front door. And I remember like it was yesterday, me, my brother, and my mom in the balcony area of the flat with the the smoke coming in. And we were just saying our final prayers because we thought Mm. that's it. Uh, That was over and done with. Um, that was a realization that with a great deal of racism in the council properties at that time in the 80s, that something had to be done and I needed to get out of here. I needed to improve my situation, not just for myself, but for my mum and my, my brother as well. Um, thereafter, with uh, my father passed away, he didn't get to see my uh, school grades, but that moment that my father passed away was quite difficult because around these projects, around council estates, there's a great deal of poverty and a great deal of crime as well. And that's symptomatic today as well. So I ended up in a little bit of trouble. I ended up with two or three days at Her Majesty's service in a local police cell and at a low end, so to speak. I needed to get out of here. And which route do I follow? Do I follow crime or do I follow education? Fortunately for me, I had two mentors. One was that boss from the shop uh, from when I was age 14. And another one was a family friend. Both of them uh, were quite religious. One was a a devout Christian, one was a devout Hindu. And they both had a one-to-one with me at this special moment of time with me. That if you carry down on the road of crime, and you get into it further, you won't see the age of 30. Mm. But you have this um, meaning and the substance and this ability with education. You've got fairly decent grades. You need to center your attention on that, which is what I did. And I studied at South Bank University whilst working uh, part-time just one day a week. Uh, And the education there was free. Thereafter, I continued working and, and studying continuously throughout those years. Again, just to s- build up that small amount of money to get out of the council flats. Mm-hmm. Because in those council flats, uh, there are things that you probably haven't seen, Rick, Af, uh, Mitesh as well, and many of our viewers today. I've seen domestic violence roar in its face. I've seen walls cl- covered in blood. I have seen screams, I have seen suicides, I have seen bodies at the age of 10 and I have had my closest friends who have lost their lives through the depression and the lack of an an alternative pathway of being stuck where you are and that is quite soul destroying. Therefore, for me personally, higher education was the ticket and is still the ticket now for many in the inner cities, in the projects, in the US, UK, and worldwide to improve their life chances, but not just for them. It improves the life chances for their family, for their friends, and the community as a whole. they become ambassadors, social ambassadors. That aspect of social mobility is sacrosanct in terms of higher education. So yes, there is change uh, that's required, and we'll talk about that later. But that's my journey, and I can imagine my wife knocking on the door any moment now saying, I didn't know you ended up in a police cell. Uh, We need to talk about this.
0: (laughs) Well, this is Straight Talk Live, so I appreciate you doing that right now and literally going from trauma to transcending that through education and how you've been empowered in that journey and now are empowering others in the next generation. It's really inspiring. So thank you for sharing. That really gives me a taste of what has you here today. Um, so thank you for that. That brave share.
1: Thank you, Chaz. That's uh, Chandras. That's brilliant. Thank you for sharing those stories. I'm sure many who are listening will be um, will be quite moved. And um, this is this is a fantastic platform. But uh, over to Mitesh. Mitesh, uh, we want to hear all about you. And um, how did you end up here?
3: Um. So just hearing Chandra's uh, talk, I think that uh, uh, we'll be familiar with uh, the Asian household and uh, the amount of uh, emphasis they place on education. And the nice thing about education is that it's a great leveler. And in this day and age, uh, it gives rise to opportunity of, for, for all classes. Um, and it should be a fundamental right in society. Um, you know, my my you know my mum uh, always uh, regretted not being able to study, and she she always wanted uh, her siblings, her her children to to have that opportunity. Fortunately, um, Britain is a fantastic uh, country, uh, mm-hmm. uh, very forward-looking, and we came to the UK uh, as uh, refugees from Uganda. Uh, literally penniless, had nothing, uh, you know, in the pocket. But through education, uh, it's enabled us to grow through the ranks and to create value. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to go through the corporate sector, uh, had some fantastic uh, training along the way. uh, And I also built my own business where I was able to give back. So, you know, being able to have the education, grow in your own thinking, and then to be able to give back is a very humbling experience. And uh, I think it's uh, more possible today than ever before, Uh, you know, given the introductions that both you and Rick shared about the technology advances uh, and the fact that these technologies are leveling uh, the world when it comes to access to education. And we mustn't forget uh, the rising billion that have no education, but with the access To uh, a laptop, uh, they can have basic uh, uh, literacy skills Mm -hmm. in third world countries, um, providing they have an internet connection uh, Mm -hmm. and a laptop device, um, putting, you know, higher education aside, but um, I think it's a tremendous uh, opportunity. And um, the other thing that resonates with me is that uh, now more than ever before, we can start thinking about exponential thinking. Uh, and so much in today's society uh, is driven by a linear uh, model and mentality. The fact that you have incremental improvement to your, um, to your working models. But with the application of technologies that are moving at an exponential rate, you can rapidly shake that up. Uh, and we're seeing and witnessing a wave of disruptions that are redefining and reinventing industries including education but um you know not exclusively education so that's what brings me here today i stumbled ac- across singularity university in 2010 when i saw peter diamandis's amazing talks online where he talks about abundance and a lot of the time we we uh, have a scarcity mindset and that scarcity mindset comes from the post-war industrial area where you know, the mindset is on factory production, uh, you know, mass scale, uh, you, know, you know, production of skills in a predefined way where, where um, you know, growth was the key objective. But uh, as uh, Rick mentioned, this is a great reset now. You know, how do we come out of this and how do we build the education systems of to no- tomorrow that are not uh, a factory model, but will create the purpose and the, and the profit whilst preserving the planet and create a system and a society that we can be proud of and that we can bequeath to our children.
0: Mitesh, well summarized. I really like your main point about being the great leveler and how education has that opportunity to empower everyone in that way uh, and level the playing field, if you will. No matter the background circumstances, there's that opportunity. So let's, let's dive right in. Um, and I was thinking when we're talking about higher education 2.0 and what needs to be happening right now in our post-pandemic world, why don't we first just briefly establish what is higher education 1.0? If you could just one of you or both of you briefly, briefly summarize what is traditional higher education as we know it in a couple sentences, how would you encapsulate that just so we can have a baseline to then look at what's next? Who'd like to kick off?
2: Uh, I don't mind kicking off. Um, I've been a lecturer in higher education for over 20 years. And the model is centered around lectures and seminars, certain number of weeks and a certain number of hours of contact time. And within business schools, students, uh, we, we rely on students to learn independently. And that's the essence of the, of the model of yesterday, literally of yesterday, but as you said, things are changing. Mitesh mentioned the conveyor belt uh, mechanism, and it does feel like a conveyor belt, that model of yesterday. Week one, right up to week six, reading week, then you continue again, next semester starts, it's hello, goodbye, 100, 200 students in a lecture theater, smaller groups in a seminar, uh, Yes, that that lecture theater, uh, I'll be honest, I hate the lecture theater. Although I've delivered so many lectures, it's not conducive to, to real learning.
0: You're giving me flashbacks. I went to the University of Washington in Seattle for my undergrad. There were lecture halls that could fit five to 700 students in one class. It was called Kane Hall, if anyone knows University of Washington. And it was abominable because half the room was asleep if they showed up to school that day and to class. But you could, no one, it was too anonymous. You could yes. just check out. There's no, there's no possibility of participation and engagement. Mm-hmm. You're literally watching a boring movie that you could watch later and you're, you're ready for like, you know, lunchtime with your friends or something. And so that was so much, that was a lot of my early year or two. And then of course, as you go further in the education system, you have smaller classrooms and more engagement and more specializations but you just gave me a flashback of higher education 1.0 that did not inspire me.
1: And I, get, and I guess it's not changed since then, back, back in
0: 1945,
1: eh? <laughs> 40, 46.
0: 1946, it's been the same. <laughs> give me credit, give me credit. <laughs> okay, great. So let's, uh, let's blast off into higher education 2.0. And what I love is, let's take an honest look at this. Like, what's not working in today's world right now? What are you seeing are the big fissures and, and, and just the areas that need shifting that are painfully obvious to each of you?
3: Um, so maybe I can jump in there and uh, provide some insights of what I'm seeing here with my kids as they are locked down at home, um, but also uh, my niece who is, is a higher education student Um, You know, the the, the 1.0 is really the mass production factory model. Here's an instruction manual, follow the manual, uh, a a very static curriculum with lectures at designed periods and then broken up with exam results at the end. And when you get to the exam results, you get graded. So there's a very prescriptive uh, method of getting from A to B, uh, and it can turn off Uh, uh, learners if they're introduced to topics at the wrong time, uh, either because of interest or because of ability. And this can lead to learners becoming disaffected, um, bored, and then the love of learning wanes over time. So this factory uh, model, mass production, follow the rule book, uh, get the certificate, differentiate against the certificate, and then the employers picking the cream uh uh with leaving uh the rest to kind of deal with uh having a a different certificate so i think this 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 whole kind of addiction to that certificate is is one of the issues that we have today Uh, and the instructor-led uh almost directional kind of teaching which almost needs to change towards a more creative form of asking the right questions because You know, the the factory model was relevant when we needed to build society's goods and things at scale. But today, if we're rebuilding the society with the old model, we're not gonna reinvent the society. And the questions that we need to ask are the questions that uh, automation cannot solve. So today you can get most of the knowledge you want by looking it up on Siri or Google. There are vast amounts of knowledge uh uh, bases available at your fingertips so why are we teaching in a way uh that that is literally sourcing knowledge so i think we need to move away from like individual instruction led uh learning towards more personalized creative and peer learning you know can you quickly access information from your peers can you have social learning and why isn't it that we cannot jump campuses Why are we confined to a campus in the UK? What if we pulled in people like we are on this call from all around the world, engaging their thoughts, views, uh, but ahead of time preparing the questions and then entertaining a dialogue and conversation which then moves things forward. So, um, you know, I think 2.0 is a collaborative, connective and rich experience that draws upon the expertise of, of a wider network of learners and it's actually you know can we focus on the learning side of it not the teaching side can we think about learners as lifelong learners and so can the teacher actually step back and listen and coach rather than tell and instruct so i think there are a a number of different ways from a cultural point of view that 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 we can shift and start thinking about and experimenting and also kind of collaborating and using digital as a way of getting rich and diverse views on a topic.
1: I just want to add something there. You, You used a really important set of words together, lifelong learning. And the reason it's so important to keep stating that again and again is because that has not been a democratized Um, sentence or a set of words together. Those who were fortunate enough to be lifelong learners were a certain uh, elite group of people, you know, who were major academics or part of think tanks or uh, groups of people who were, to some extent, not as accessible or available to the masses. And therefore, for many years, you've had these elite groups and these foundations and think tanks drive agendas. For economies, you know, be it policy or education or health or uh, similar, and I think digital has democratized that. It's, a, it's such an amazing equalizer. And what's it? What's what's ironic here is that we're already we're already um, using online learning in our everyday lives and we're doing it effectively outside of the bounds of a um, institutional degree or um, of what we know is the 1.0 so for example you come out of university and you go onto a bunch of platforms to learn new things you chat to your friends on whatsapp or other communication medium or slack you collaborate using all forms of digital you go on TikTok. you're on facebook you're on insta these aren't just entertainment tools these are exchanges exchange of ideas views frustration habits emotions all of those then make a massive difference on how you end up learning in the tacit 1.0 learning environment which is let me tell you in a broadcast fashion what you should learn which which you know Chaz, i'm sure you'll agree with and i guess i guess what we're saying while we're having this session is because i think um, educational institutions, the leaders of these institutions, the educators, the decision makers need to wake up and smell the coffee. I think they've been far too lazy. They haven't been able to see that the world has moved on. And I think this event, this crisis that's happened, this almost tragedy or this, uh, you know, trigger event, which is is the COVID-19, has forced institutions, public or private, to reconsider everything. Mm -hmm. New rules, new game. And digital has to be a key component of that. Chaz, question for you. Um, You know, what what um, if you were given a blank sheet of paper, a mandate, and you were given infinite amounts of money, and all the right resources you needed, what are the three or four things you would do overnight to transform the higher education system, which you call 1.0 to 2.0. So what what would you do? Quick fly around.
2: I think I'll go by the principles of um, a quote, which uh, by Wilson Zuzu uh, of China, back in the BCs. Uh, Tell me and I forget, teach me and I remember, involve me and I learn. And it's those principles that are are needed now. We need to totally think outside the box. And that is happening. And business schools around the world have been taken aback by this change. And they've had to, they've been forced to move rapidly. What changes would I make? I would look at blended learning, where we have the digital and the human. We cannot simply just say, okay, the delivery has to be uh, via the digital, there has to be a human element in there. We are social beings at the end of the day, but that choice has to be open. That if someone cannot, if a student cannot simply attend your uh, geographical location, in terms of say London, uh, which they are expected to do so at the moment, we can reach out to them. May that be in Mumbai or in Washington, or in Seattle or in Africa or in Australia. These geographical boundaries no longer exist and the technology is there to use to use the platforms to reach out and to provide social mobility, not just to an inner city area of London, but, but worldwide. And that's what I would look at, it's the transformation in terms of social mobility on
1: a wide scale.
0: Yeah, because, go, go, sorry, go ahead, Rick. Well, I just want to say, I'm so glad you mentioned the human element also, because that can still get lost funny enough, even though we're educating human beings. There's so much emphasis on the digital transformation and the enablement and mobility, which is wonderful and necessary, like you said, for leveling where everyone can have that reach now where they couldn't have that have had that before. But you still have to be able to look someone in the eye. You still have to be able to shake hands. You still have to when we're allowed to do that, that is. But you're, you still have to be able to build your leadership presence and learn how to influence and motivate people and, and inspire. Um, and that's, so much of that is somatic, not just mental. And it also brings me, Chaz, to the idea that psychology has also made a big influence in how we teach and how we learn. It just in the fact that we have visual learners, auditory learners, kinesthetic learners. And that wasn't really yeah. on the conversation 20, 30 years ago, it was just a one size fits all model. And so now we realize the importance of things like design thinking that came out of Stanford that's being utilized in every innovative think tank that I know of, where, you know, you're getting to literally work with some very basic materials and you have a, very, a time-limited session where you have to create something with other partners and, and people that you're, you're working with in order to create and produce a new innovative project based on the limitations that you're given, but it's very tactile and conversational and you wouldn't get that in a traditional setting. And so it just inspires me that how can learning be both more human and more digital to serve the ends that we're talking about?
2: I've experienced that, Rick. Um, I went to, I attended a, um, a net impact conference in Philadelphia a couple of years ago, and I attended a workshop called Design Sprint. In the middle of this table uh, were children's toys plasticine, uh, straws, uh, sticky note paper, fluorescent colored pencils and pens. And I have to, I had my biases that this is not for me. This is, what kind of session is this with this kind of children's material lying on the table? But it was one of the sessions that really did stand out. We all immersed ourselves in that session, academics, professionals, and students. And we came away with a totally different way of thinking of how to tackle business processes, business uh, problems uh, with different processes and and a different way of thinking.
0: Precisely.
1: So it's interesting because you use, we're going to use the term blended, you call it blended learning. We'll, we'll, We'll use that, okay? So blended learning is, where digital and 1.0 and 2.0 find a way to get married and have a good relationship and it's all sustainable and they don't have too many fights and it, it, it lasts forever <laughs> for example <laughs> and so that 1.2 at uh, 1.0 2.0 marriage is called blended learning blended learning has loads of digital in it it's got loads of technology immersive technology ar vr the whole lot there are numerous examples out there, guys, of institutions right now, who universities who've changed the game, who've taken the small little digital unit they had in their university, maybe the online MBA, the online course, that was being ignored for many, many years, and now they've gone to the guy who ran that unit or the girl who ran that unit and said, hey, actually, what you were doing was pretty wise and sensible. How do we now expand and scale that? Now, let's imagine, for just a scenario for both you and and um, Chandrez and Mitesh, Imagine we now have 2.0, it's happening, okay? A few questions. Number one, are the educators, let's park the learners, because I think the learners are going to be totally up for this, because many of them are digital natives, many of them are digital Darwins, they've got used to this. Are the educators ready for 2.0, really? And if they are, how come? Why would you say they're ready? And if they're not, what's stopping them? What's the blockage in the uh, arteries here? Mitesh, maybe you go first. What's your
3: What are your thoughts? Uh, so the majority of educators today have come through the system, uh, the education system that is there today. Uh, they've been taught to deliver curriculum in a certain way. Um, you know, pull the assets together, deliver the learning, market, assess it, and move on. Uh, and that's a habit that's formed over many years. So. To be able to do a hard stop and say, are you ready for digital today, Um, I would, I would posit that many of the educators are not ready, there needs to be some kind of learning, some kind of upskilling. And this, by the way, is not restricted to educators, there is a mass transformation happening with automation in jobs, 75 million jobs will be lost uh, in the coming years. You know, what are they being replaced by? And uh, in the past, we're looking at uh, growing new, uh, uh, new skills. So the university was there to create graduates, but there are gonna be so many adult learners that need to reskill and relearn, including educators. What does it mean to be digital? Um, and what are the new skills that we need to learn for today? And I think that when you um, look at the world today, and Rick mentioned it um, earlier, uh, to, to To make the, the learning relevant, one thing you can do is create challenges and create games and say well look here 's a challenge that we need to solve. How do we solve poverty? how do we solve how do we become more prosperous as a nation? Um, and, and you know how do we be, become more sustainable? That is the problem. Use your physics, use your geography, use your background to solve this pro- problem and by the way, you have uh, two weeks to solve it. And it's an assignment for you to take away, go and work with your peers and come back with a solution that you can take back into society. And that's what you're going to get marked on. Do we know how to work like that? Do educators think like that? It's a complete flip. So it will take time and, it, you know, it will take, co- co- you know, corralling of a wide and disparate group, not just educators, it's the government um, it's, it's the leading uh, support institutions, the, um, the, the whole elevator system that needs a rethink and a reboot. So these things don't happen overnight. Um, so I think that there is a lot of work to do, but it is the right way. And we need to figure out a better way uh, and not just put 1.0 in the cloud as, as my kids are doing right now. They basically have a curriculum they put it into the cloud and they're going through the curriculum step by step and yeah. they have daily check ins. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's still 1.0. We need to think about how it can be more sustainable, how it can be more relevant in a shorter time frame, creating dynamic curriculums and creating outcomes that are directly relevant to society, um, you know, without mass commercialization. So I think if you can get that right, we'll have a wonderful system
1: so educators are not ready according to you and we need to create outcomes so there is a gap between those who teach you and guide you and lead you today who need some upskilling themselves they need there's a skills revolution and attributes re- revolution that needs to happen on the educator side and then of course the whole gamification also, the gamification piece that you're talking about. sorry go on
3: but also who's setting the objectives and who's setting the new way of instruction. That's government-led. It needs to be society-led. And why would educators jump on and start a new thing if they can't see a roadmap for their own careers in the future? So I think it's wider than just educators. Uh, there's a whole raft of initiatives that need to take place.
1: Your thoughts, Chandras, and then we have, I, I have one more question, which is a little bit provocative, but your thoughts.
2: I agree mostly with what Amitesh uh, is saying. In my sector, uh, recently 70 universities were involved in strike action and there are issues that need to be ironed out with individual universities, with the government, around pensions, around workload. Uh, we saw in 2016, a uh, 2017 or maybe even 2018, an academic who committed suicide at Cardiff Business School and one of the reasons was the amount that he was pushed and worked so hard for his students. That was one of the reasons why he, he took his life. Yeah. So there are these issues, these political issues with the union, with the government, with universities, which means at the moment, the amount of goodwill mm-hmm. by the academic to the institution, in many institutions is, is basically running on empty. There's also the, the mindset issue as well. Some will see what Mitesh is talking about as edutainment I'm all for edutainment. Why can't students learn and be interested and enjoy that experience? If you call that edutainment, then so be it. But that's looked upon in a derogatory way, which is a shame. Not by all, but by some. But we need, in my sector, we need the resources and the support. The will is there from many, I wouldn't say from all, but that resource and support needs to be there so we can do a, a proper job with this blended learning and not, as what Mitesh has said, put the lectures and seminars onto the cloud and let them, let them enjoy it. That's just not going to work. That's a recipe for disaster and we can't pussyfoot around this.
1: Rick, I know we've got a couple of questions here. Um, do we want to fire them up? Are they relevant right now or a poll? Uh, let's, that goes we'll the audience.
0: poll here um, if we could get the poll on what's needed what do you what do you the listener right now think is needed in a 21st century higher education so right now get on this and answer this in the next 30 seconds we want to get your take what do you think is needed in a 21st century education that's painfully not there right now what would you select so go ahead everyone can participate in that and then let's see what our listeners come up with you'll make your selection, hit submit, and then we'll see the results in a few seconds here. Ooh, pretty evenly distributed, um, except for more creativity, definitely takes the lead. So interesting. Um, more flexibilities in there, a little higher than the others. Not more contact time. <laughs> that did not score. <laughs> not needing that, apparently. But, but more creativity. How could you both speak to that? What do you think that could mean that would actually enliven the listener in a, in a new way in the 21st century? What do you guys think? Um,
3: yeah, look, I think uh, uh, if you want to be a lifelong learner, then you've got to be constantly uh, engaged and constantly interested in learning. Uh, the minute that you get put off, Uh, and you don't enjoy education anymore, you'll never go back to your phone, you'll never connect, you'll never go to Summit because you put off. So, Mm. you know, challenges, gamification, social, uh, you know, ways that make you not feel isolated, but, um, you know, bespoke learning according to your abilities is very transformative. You know, I think that's, that's what's needed. Um, and we have all the tools uh, for that today with uh, AI and learning and sensors that, uh, in China, the kids uh, have sensors, they're wearing headbands, they can tell when um, they're engaged in a subject, so you can actually get feedback loops, there's a whole issue on ethics, whether that's, uh, whether that's a good way forward or not, but I think in the future, um, these mechanisms will allow you to trade your data for more engaging experiences. Uh, and so I think like the creativity, the connection, the collaboration, um, you, know, if, if I, if I, you know, if I was going back to school today, I would like a free course to go and hop onto Harvard, MIT, Oxbridge, you know, I'd like to have a global pass. Um, and and if, if institutions can actually hold hands for a moment and say, well, you know, can we lift the level collectively and encourage more learning, um, I think that would be a wonderful thing, but it, it, you know, um, how many institutions would be willing to, to, to kind of opt into something like that?
0: Well, I've never thought of that before, the idea of like a global pass or a global passport for yeah. education, where you get your stamp in the different curriculums that are somehow integrated and that there's enough partners out there that are willing to co-sign each other that way. That's a really interesting yeah. idea.
2: The words creativity and the business school here in the UK don't go hand in hand. So I'm glad to see uh, creativity was right up there. Um, This has been echoed before at uh, teaching and learning conferences that I've been to specifically for the business school. Um, Back in 2017, uh, Professor Ray Land, who's Professor Emeritus at Durham University, was highly critical of business schools, that they need to shake up. They need to take more risks. They need to take more... uh, different approaches to teaching, teaching and learning that challenges the students, that reinvigorates them and in that reinvigoration that lecture environment that you that you uh, went back to Rick there uh, is still here now. Where else is there a lecture theater? Not in the primary schools, not in the secondary schools, it's not in the workplace but in this little space called university you have these giant lecture theaters. Why? We need to get rid of them,
1: and I'm all for more
2: I'm
1: all for more creative. You know, guys, there's there's one thing I want to throw at you. One part of the straight talk.live mission statement. We have three parts to it, but one of them was all about creating a sense of optimistic urgency to compel execution. Creating a sense of optimistic urgency to compel execution. And I'm gonna break that in two parts. One is We haven't talked about disruption in terms of the new breed of upstarts and a new form of education. Not the traditional institutions, perhaps even the Amazons, who are setting up a foundation right now to be the 21st century or beyond educator of tomorrow. They've put in $700 million into upskilling over 100,000 of their employees out of the 300,000. And as a result, they've engaged some of the world's best scientists, educators, philosophers, uh, digital minds. And they're creating a think tank on steroids, right? And once they do this for 100,000, which is a fantastic N equals 100,000 sample group, you have the basis of a whole new curriculum, agile, flexible, dynamic, which is using the best of digital and it has been tested in an environment like amazon so imagine just for a moment that the disruptor of tomorrow is amazon university right and traditional universities need to start waking up to that because they may be actually much like an mna absorbed or acquired the private ones at least by uh, disruptive institutions uh, if, if they have value, for example. So one piece of this is disruptive competitors or collaborators, you can call them what you want. And question mark is a rhetorical question. How, how will the business models and revenue models and retention models of universities cope, survive? One part. Second part, second part is to do with obvious threats around enrollment. You know, the view on the street from all sorts of academic institutions, World Economic Forum, and even government data suggests that, Students or learners, because of this lockdown, may take gap years right Some might say well whilst i 've got this time out, I might do some online learning and flexible learning, um, some might reconsider whether they actually want to um, you know go to university and complete the degree um, they, the, the view on the, the the markets is that there could be a ten percent drop in enrollment and that has a twenty percent negative impact on revenue that 's significant revenue. Um, not even going into the retention rates and the complexities around employment and and, and all that sort of good stuff. Many universities, I'll speculate, might even shut down because they're out of cash. Um, And so there's a whole new transformation and disruption happening in the university space. What are your individual thoughts around these two points? One is, is the university of tomorrow gonna look different? And B, how are you gonna deal with the revenue loss and the enrollment loss? Because why I make these two points is because it stems and it feeds back into the sense of optimistic urgency. Maybe this is what we needed in higher education to drive, in fact, crisis, they say, makes the rigid minds less rigid. Chandras, those guys who might have been a little bit rigid in your world, or even Mithesh in your world, maybe maybe will be less rigid. I mean, I'm not saying they're gonna be open source, but they'll be less rigid. Maybe this is what we needed to drive that transformation. So. Jury's out, but out there. Rick, you want to say something? You're desperate to say something. There.
0: Yes. I want, I'm want. i going to challenge each of you to get really creative right now in, in the subject of creativity as we have three minutes left total. So I want you to laser in your answers and go.
3: Um, I would just say change the business model. Uh, if you look at Cambridge, it's an 800-year institution. Harvard, 400 years. Uh, general Assembly, it's 10 years old. Yet it has thousands of courses, 20 campuses worldwide. Um, a a virtually zero marginal cost of delivering those courses um, and a virtually open-ended capability to add new dynamic curriculums as uh, changes happen. So, um, you know, change the business model, uh, partner, go digital. You know, partnerships, I think, are are key. It gives you access to innovation uh, much more rapidly than otherwise. Um, think about collaboration and connectivity and think of other universities as your partners. You're stronger together. And I think that uh, if you have that level of collaboration, we'll end up in a better world.
0: Jaz?
2: I agree with Mitesh. The, the amount of collaboration that's required is, this is the moment. We need to seize that moment in terms of collaboration. In terms of the revenue that's lost, so far in this discussion, we have not talked about research and the amount of funds generated from teaching and learning for the purpose of research is, is critical. And we're seeing that at this moment with the amount of funding for medical experiments, new vaccines, etc. cetera. Some of that money, quite a fair amount of that money at university level comes from the business school. So it is dark times at the moment but the revenue needs to, to come back in. It will, because we're going to have to go for the blended learning approach. We have this legacy in America, in the UK, in Australia of attracting overseas students. We're just going to have to reach out to them in a different way.
0: Hmm. Fantastic uh, summaries. Uh, what are your closing words? I want to give you each an opportunity before we wrap up today. Just, I'd love to hear your closing words on your, your optimism for higher education 2.0 How do you see us really speaking to the curiosity and the engagement of the students versus just syllabus-based learning? What is your sense on how you see that playing out as we're wrapping up, your your last words here?
3: So I'm very optimistic by uh, seeing all the new uh, tech organizations that are experimenting with technologies to make the experience uh, much more engaging uh, and flipping the model, uh, allowing uh, learners to be able to choose what they learn um, based on their abilities and behaviors that are tapped in real time. Um, you know, old school is doing some nice things, flipping things on their head. Um, Khan Academy is doing nice things by allowing you to learn those areas that in- interest you the most. But then combining that with the physical and how holding summits, uh, just imagine if you could go to like six digit Six summits around the world. After doing uh, some pre-work, you get the best of both. You do the digital bit in the beginning, and then you go and fly it and have a conference, and you work with subject matter experts uh, and accelerate your learning. So I think you know, accelerating the outcomes, making dynamic outcomes and dynamic syllabuses using technology. We're seeing it in the edtech sector. So I'm hugely optimistic. Um, We've got technology at our disposal more than ever before. It's cheaper than ever before. Uh, And now in the time of reset, there are more eyeballs looking at it. So it's a unique moment in time where we can collectively uh, use technology for the the, the benefit of a better education system.
0: Excellent. How
2: strange is it that through this coronavirus crisis that there is A window of opportunity should have happened maybe a decade or two ago. But here we are, through human suffering, that we have this moment and we need to seize it. Higher education needs to seize it. All I can add to this EDI, we cannot forget in the redesign of higher education 2.0, equality, diversity and inclusivity. Mm -hmm. Social mobility is, is key. Local, national, international learner-centered, smaller groups, but as we go into the digital world, we cannot forget the human side. That one-to-one interaction that we're having now is very important. We are social beings.
0: Yes, points well taken. Um, For me, I love how you ended that Chaz around, you know, it's through often our crises that our innovation is what um, extrapolates. That's what moves us forward is we need to be tested when our back is against the wall is when we see our true character. And so what an amazing moment this is, this great reset of, are we really going to put our money where our mouth is and our passions are and our investors out there that are listening and the different ways we can contribute to this new way of educating that needs to change, that is changing. And hopefully this conversation inspires the listeners out there to start doing something about it in, in creative ways. So I wanna thank you both uh, for being on our show today. Uh, you both have contributed tremendous amounts. Mitesh and Chandres, thank you so much for your experiential education on this show for us. And Af, always a pleasure to do this with you.
1: Yeah, likewise, a great great having you guys on this, um, this session. So much more to talk about, but we'll do that again one time.
0: 100% and just a little preview for next week we'll be looking at is an MBA, your fastest depreciating asset in our current times. Uh, We're gonna have Jim Barry of the UCL School of Management. It is going to be a hot debate. We're gonna be challenging the heck out of him on his point of view. (laughs) It'll be a lot of fun and very educational too. So once again, thank you all for tuning in and go out there, stay safe, stay adventurous, stay innovative and onwards.
1: Thank you. Goodbye.
2: Thank
0: you, all the best. You up.